Grace and peace to you from God our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The Gospel reading we heard earlier is unique. It's not a unique miracle. There's another instance recorded in the Bible, in fact, where Jesus feeds 4,000 people using seven loaves and an unspecified small amount of fish. Here, what we just read, we have 5,000 people fed with five loaves and specifically two fish. So the miracle itself is not that unique. Here's what's unique. This account, the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, is recounted in all four Gospels. The only other story common to all four Gospels, the Gospels, again, the four books that recount for us the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The only other story that all four of them are sure to include is Jesus' death and resurrection. Not all four Gospels include his birth. Not all four include his baptism or temptation. They don't all include his various public sermons. They don't all include his ascension. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all made sure to record Jesus' death and resurrection and this particular miracle as they wrote their accounts of the life of Jesus Christ. I hope that leads you to appreciate how important this miracle is. Again, it's not unique, and I'll even go this far. I will say that we wouldn't need this miracle recorded for us to come to faith in Jesus as our Savior if the feedings of the 5,000 and the 4,000 simply dropped out of our Bibles overnight, what's left would still have the gospel message clearly proclaimed. Christ Jesus is our Savior, our substitute on the cross, the sacrifice bringing about reconciliation between us and our God. But our God felt it important that we hear this story. See, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John didn't make their choices about what they'd write in their accounts of Jesus' life autonomously. The Bible teaches that every word in it was written by human authors under the influence and power of God's Holy Spirit. God wanted you to hear about this miracle. And if you worshipped with us last spring, you actually have heard me preach on this miracle already. We spent a few months last year working through John's Gospel in our Sunday messages. And John recounts this miracle in chapter 6 of his Gospel. What I brought out last time I preached on this miracle was the forethought, the planning that characterized Jesus and his ministry and this miracle in particular. Jesus was never caught off guard. Jesus was always in control, always prepared. I've got some notes in your worship folder today that talk about the different ways this miracle is recounted by the four gospel writers, because each of them, as is always true, they they present the same things, the same story of the same man's life, but they include particular details or events. They don't note others, because they're all highlighting different aspects of Jesus' life, and they all highlight different aspects of this particular miracle. For Mark, when we read his account, the most important thing in the in his account is Jesus' power and Jesus' authority. Luke notes the way that Jesus brought his disciples into the work he was doing. John's primary focus is not on Jesus' control, which I brought out last time when I preached on John, but it's really on the way that the crowd, as always, ends up misunderstanding Jesus' mission. Today we're reading Matthew's account, and Matthew also has a particular focus in what he records here. As we consider this miracle, once again, I want to bring out to you today what Matthew brings out for us. Matthew highlights Jesus' compassion as he tells this story. Let's see how. Our text begins, When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately. When Jesus heard that what had happened? Well, let's set the scene. 
As the story picks up here, Jesus had sent his 12 disciples, the men we call the apostles, out on a short mission trip maybe a month or two prior. He sent them out two by two. Then he had been spending some time with his broader crowd of followers, traveling through various towns, preaching, teaching, healing. While on this tour, the followers of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, came to find Jesus. They needed to tell him something. John, Jesus' cousin, the man who had baptized him, who had preceded him to point the people toward Jesus as the Lamb of God sent to take away sin, John had been executed by Herod, the Roman-backed client king of Judea, because John had been publicly and privately decrying Herod's sexually deviant and immoral behavior. Because of his preaching, John lost his head. John's disciples recovered his body, buried him, and then came to tell Jesus. So Jesus is hurting as this story begins. He withdraws to a solitary place to mourn. Jesus is a man, a human being. He loved his cousin. He's grieved by this death. Most Bible scholars, myself included, come to the conclusion that Joseph, Jesus' stepfather, had died sometime between Jesus' 12th and 30th birthdays. So Jesus, as a young man, a young adult, mourned the death of his father. As a grown man, he mourned the death of his cousin. Later, he would mourn the death of his friend Lazarus. Death caused Jesus to grieve here on earth. So the grief you feel at the death of a loved one is not sinful. Death ought to inspire grief. We ought to reflect on the nature of life when death comes near to us. We ought to remember that this life is fleeting and out of our control. We ought to reflect soberly on the wages of our sin, which wages our death. The man Jesus Christ also grieved. But see what happens as Matthew continues telling us the story. Hearing that Jesus had left, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Here we see that Jesus was no mere human like you or me. Of course, we can look at the miracles he's doing and conclude that there's someone special here, someone more powerful than us. But God worked miracles through mere humans before Jesus. What makes Jesus different is his compassion. We are so ill-equipped as modern Westerners to deal with death. For most of history, death was a far more frequent visitor to homes and families. Babies died, and some cultures would delay naming children for months after birth because they wanted to be sure the child would live. Children died. Strange diseases would overtake them, and there were no treatments. My own father's oldest sister died in childhood. That was just the 1950s. Young adults died. Middle-aged people died. Elders died. We are so insulated from that. Death is such an anomaly for us, in fact, that we would be horrified to hear of a friend who had to go right back to work after a death in the family. Much less can we imagine someone trying to help others at such a time. No, during their bereavement, we bring them a lasagna. We send them flowers. We pick up their shift at work. Do you see what Jesus does during his bereavement? He wants to mourn. He withdraws to wait for the apostles to find him after their mission trip. He wants to be alone right now, but when he sees this large crowd waiting for him, he puts all that out of mind and has compassion on them. This ought to convince us that this man, Jesus, is something special and different, someone set apart from every other human What we see him do here for the crowd certainly again underscores for us that this is someone special, powerful. But when we see his love, we see that this is no mere man, but the God-man. 
This is God sailing a boat to find a private place where he can cry. This is a man who is able to heal any illness with his touch and who can feed thousands from a bag lunch. The two different feeding miracles that we get, in fact, underscore his power. Here, where the crowd is a thousand greater, there's less food. In the other instance, where the food is greater by two loaves, the crowd is smaller by a thousand mouths. Jesus wants us to see that there's no limit on his power to provide. It depends in no part on what we bring to the table. It is his power at work when he provides for us. He is the God-man, and he is full of compassion. At some point, Matthew doesn't quite make clear to us when it is, the twelve apostles find Jesus, who's serving this great crowd now. They're far out in the north of Israel, near a town called Bethsaida. The map in your bulletin notes the location. Three of the disciples, Peter, Andrew, and Philip, are from this region, and knowing the area, they see a problem. For this crowd, which followed Jesus from the southwest, Judea, into the wilderness backcountry of Galilee, it will be a long trip home. They need to get going now if they're going to find somewhere safe to eat and then settle down for the night. So, we read, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Oh, disciples. They're just like us so ready in so many ways to hear Jesus' words, to treasure his instruction, to lead others to him, they're also so prone to thinking so little of him. To looking to their own strength, wisdom, abilities to provide. Then we are the same. We are so often so quick to discount God's ability to provide. We worry about the next election and who's going to be in charge of our country rather than remembering that the God-man is enthroned over the whole world. We find a thousand things to occupy our time on Sunday mornings, kids' sports, or shifts at work, or just sleeping in, because we believe that those things will bring us, bring our families, greater benefit than having God's word in our ears. Jesus does not generally call this unbelief, to be clear. He calls it weak faith, little faith, when we discount his ability to provide when we look to ourselves. And what is weak and little will only grow as it is fed and exercised. So Jesus exercises the faith of the apostles here. He tells them, you do not need to go away. You, the twelve, give them something to eat. When he says this, he's showing his compassion for them. Because they and we must come to this realization. What God commands of us in his law, we cannot offer. God commands that we love and honor him above all things and love our neighbors in place of ourselves perfectly at all times, in all places, from the moment our life begins in the womb until the last breath passes over our lips. God calls us to faithfulness. He says that we are called to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And this such work we cannot accomplish just as the apostles could not have fed this multitude. This is why God wanted this miracle recorded alongside the death of Jesus in all four Gospels. What the cross would later accomplish, this miracle had already illustrated. God in his law makes demands of us. God at the cross satisfied those demands with the death of his son, Jesus. On the shore here, Jesus makes demands of his disciples. On the shore here, Jesus delivers exactly what he demanded of his disciples. What God demands from you, holiness, 
righteousness, innocence, Jesus delivers to you. He delivers it here in the holy waters of baptism. He delivers it here in the bread and the wine of the supper that he instituted. He delivers it here in the lips, in the words that come off the lips of his called servant as his gospel is proclaimed to you. In God's holiness, he demands holiness. In God's compassion, he gifts you with salvation through his Son. What Jesus demanded of the disciples, he accomplished by multiplying the loaves and the fish. Then see how his compassion for the apostles is shown one more time. After distributing the meal, they collect leftover pieces. For the twelve men, there are twelve baskets of food. Maybe the crowd deserved to be fed. After all, they trusted Jesus enough to come out after him into the wilderness with no thought for their own sustenance. But shouldn't the twelve be sent away hungry as a lesson to them? Trust me next time. No, no, this is not how our Savior looks at his people. He is full of compassion, just as he proclaimed to Moses a millennium and a half before he made it clear to his apostles. Adonai, Adonai, El Rachum Vachanun, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, Erechapayim Barav Kesed, slow to anger and rich in love. O oh, you of little faith, so often worried about the things of this world, afraid of the future, uncertain and angry, Christ loves you. He looks at you and has compassion. He will always provide for you. Even when your faith is weak and your compassion falters, no longer does he withdraw in grief that you would have to seek him out in wilderness places. Here he will ever be in word and sacrament for you, bread for your hungry soul. Amen.